There were a group of people who volunteered to do a parachute jump for charity. And I just got to say, nobody but probably Lacey in this place would willingly jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Lacey has actually done a parachute jump. It's the only time she's ever ridden on a plane. The only time she has ridden on a plane, she never landed with the plane. She jumped out ahead of time. Lacey, Lacey, Lacey. And on their very first day of training, I wish she was here this morning. She's probably watching online because she could maybe verify this. On the very first day of training, the instructor made a very important point about preparing for landing when you get somewhere around 300 feet. There was one woman who, who kind of asked the question, how do you know when you are at 300 feet? And the instructor smiled and he said, you know what, that is a very good question. At about 300 feet, you can recognize the faces of the people there on the ground. And so she thought about that for a moment. And then she said, well, what happens if there's nobody there that I know? <laughs> you know, recognizing people, it's an important part of living. And it's embarrassing when somebody comes up to you and they know you but you're pretty sure you don't know them. Now, when, when I was growing up, I grew up on the island of Guam, and, 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 I, and I played a lot of sports. And if you know anything about the island, it, it is kind of a, a mixing pot of a bunch of different cultures. And so we had a lot of Chinese and Koreans and Filipinos and Chamorros, and, and I was the only Howley. Basically, I was the only white person. And so I was taller and, and a lot lighter complected than most of them. And so I stuck out a lot. And so people tended to know who I was, but I didn't necessarily know who they were. And, and that was really hard for me. I'm not real good with names anyway. But, you know, it, it's always important to try to know people and, 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 and get to know people and, and be in their lives. Today... As we continue working our way through the final week, which is Jesus' final week on earth, we just read John chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. The title of the message is Behold the Man. In our scripture, we have a number of people who don't know who Jesus is. In verses 2 and 3, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. You see, those soldiers, they didn't really believe that he was a king. But he was, and he is. The Jewish people, they answered Pilate in verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of, a, of God. You see, those Jewish people who were there, they didn't believe that he was the son of God, but he was and he is. Amen. In verse 15, shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king, but Caesar, the chief priests answered. You see, the chief priests, they didn't believe that Jesus was their king. And yet in Philippians chapter 4, it tells us that there is a day that is coming, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The soldiers, 
the Jewish people who were there, the chief priest, none of them recognized who Jesus was. But there was one man. There was one man on the scene who seemed to recognize, who, who seemed to get it right. That one man who spoke as if he almost knew Jesus, that one man was Pontius Pilate. He stands before the masses and he says, here is the man. Again, Pilate is speaking in verse 14. He says, here is your king. In verse 15, he says, shall I crucify your king? Each phrase has power. Each phrase has a, a deep and a powerful meaning. Each phrase was spoken as if it was the very words of God. It's almost like Pilate was reading from some kind of script. In fact, I think he may have actually been reading from a script, and that script was God's script. In Acts chapter 4, it declared that Herod and Pontius Pilate did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, there, there was a script. And Pilate and Herod, they were reading from the same script. And that script is the script that God had written long beforehand. This wouldn't have been the first time that somebody read from God's script. In John chapter 11, we are told that Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation Perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Caiaphas, he didn't speak on his own. He was reading from a script. And I don't think that Pilate said what he said on that day of his own. I personally believe that those were the words, the words that Pilate spoke were the words that God spoke through Pilate. For example, Pilate, he stood before the crowd and he says, here is the man. Here is the man. It kind of puzzled me for a little bit. Why would Pilate be saying, here is the man? It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't really seem to mean anything. But as, as I was going through and, and reading a little bit, someone noted that Pilate didn't want Jesus crucified. Pilate saw this, this whole episode, this whole thing that's taking place as totally unnecessary, as irrational. He didn't understand the, the hatred that drove these people. And so Pilate, he makes the declaration, here is the man. But you see, there's a, another level to all of this. Here is the man. Pilate is mocking the Jews for their cruelty. He is somehow trying to shame them into changing their mind. And that's probably what drove him to say what it is that he said. But there's a level that I think as we, we look at this, we get a little bit deeper that God might want us to see. Without even realizing it, Pilate has just quoted from a messianic prophecy from Zechariah. Here is the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
This was such an obvious messianic prophecy that the Targum, which is an ancient Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible, the Targum actually declared, here is the man, Messiah is his name. You see, Jesus, he was that man. He had come to fulfill even that prophecy from Zechariah. Here is the man. It's also interesting that when Jesus stood before Pilate, it was on a Friday, Friday morning. Friday. Does anyone know what day of the week Friday is? Well, in certain calendars, Friday would be the sixth day of the week. And what did God create on the sixth day? Man. God created man on the sixth day. Genesis tells us the Lord formed the man of dust. And that man, that man was Adam. The Bible teaches us that the first Adam became a living being. And the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It goes on and says, because the first Adam chose to sin, by a man came death. And by a man, speaking of Jesus, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Jesus, he was that second Adam. He was the man who took away my sin and my disgrace. He was the Adam who defeated death and gave me everlasting life. And so what it is saying here, what God is saying is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the man? The man who took away your sin, the man who took away your disgrace, the man who brought you eternal life. Behold, God is saying, this is the man. Do you believe in him? Pilate also asked the Jews, shall I crucify your king? It's like he's somehow pleading with them. He's begging with them. Would you please reconsider your decision? But notice how the Jewish people, how they respond. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Seriously? If you know a little bit about the history, then you know that those Jewish people, they hate the Romans. They despise Caesar. Rome has controlled and dominated Israel, and the people, they are longing to be an independent nation where they could be in charge of their own lives. They're not a free people. They are oppressed. They are being held down, and they hated that. And yet when asked if they would crucify their king, if they would crucify Jesus, they basically said, we'd rather be enslaved than accept Jesus. I've seen that attitude a number of times over the years. It goes something like, your Christianity, it may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. In other words, I would rather suffer my way. I'd rather be miserable all my life than turn to Jesus for help. Someone wants to be freed from this unhappiness, but they just don't want help from Jesus doing it. 
And yet Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. In other words, if you want to be freed from your burdens, if you want to be freed from your troubles, the things that are keeping you down, turn to Jesus. Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Lastly, as we begin wrapping a little bit here, let's take a look at Peter's, at Pilate's words. Here is your king. Now, I don't think that Pilate really thought that Jesus was a king. I think Pilate is just annoyed at these Jewish leaders. And he is somehow wanting to get their goat. He's trying to push their buttons. He's trying to somehow get underneath their skin. And so he says, here is your king. Almost mockingly, if you will. And the Jews, they take the bait. And they cry out, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. And so when Jesus hung on the cross... Pilate is, is tweaking them again. He's trying to, to push their buttons again. And he has this plaque that is placed above Jesus. And the plaque declared, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate wanted to remind them, you wanted to crucify this man? Then know that you have crucified your king. That was the message that God wanted the Jews to remember. You crucified your king. Once again, I believe that God inspired Pilate to make that statement because God actually brought that topic up again about a month later. The day is Pentecost. There's a huge number of Jews. They, they have all gathered together there in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And God has gotten their attention again because the Spirit came upon the apostles. And they began to speak in tongues that they had never, ever learned. They were telling of the mighty works of God. And it was so unusual that this large crowd of people, they all gathered together. And Peter, Peter began to preach to them. He began to speak to them, explaining from the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus was their Messiah. The king that they had waited so long for. The king that they had been anticipating. And then Peter told them, you crucified him. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the divine the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later on in Acts chapter 3, Peter is driving that exact same point home, but to a different crowd of people. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. God drove that point home over and over again. You crucified your king. Do you realize that that's what Scripture says 
you and I did, each one of us? It was because of our sins that Christ was on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we are told Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And it's important that, that we understand that truth. Jesus died to take away your sins. Jesus died to take away my sins. Back in the 1600s, there was a famous Dutch painter. His name was Rembrandt. Maybe you've heard of him. He has a number of famous paintings. But there's one that was particularly unique. It was actually called The Raising of the Cross. You see, in that picture, Rembrandt actually... Oh, yeah, you can see it there. But Rembrandt actually painted himself there at the foot of the cross. See, he wanted his audience to understand that he believed that it was his sins that put Christ on the cross. We sing a song that helps to, to drive that point home just a little bit more. How deep the Father's love for us. Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Some of you were probably singing right along with me on that. One last thought. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for your sins and for my sins. But he died there because he volunteered to be crucified. You see, it was his idea. He died there so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be changed. If we look again at 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus didn't do what he did because he hated you. He didn't do it because he thought, well, someone's got to do it, so I might as well go and do it. I don't even like these people, but okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. He died because you matter to him. He loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus loved you. And he loves you today, right here, right now. Jesus wasn't nailed to the cross by our sins. He volunteered to be nailed there for our sins. But it was our sins that kept him there. It was our lo his love for us that kept him there. Jesus freely offered his life in exchange for yours and for mine because he wanted to free us from our sins, wanted to, uh, to reestablish re that relationship with God, that communion that was there. See, that's the whole concept taking place here. He died so that you could be free. 
And the way in which you accept this free gift is simple. It's not complex. It's not a hard thing to do. Jesus isn't going to make you jump through any hoops or, or do any real special ritual type things. It talks about a little bit in Acts chapter 2. You want to change your life? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Do you, do you want to have that relationship restored? Well, all you have to do is to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's simple. I think it's so simple that it becomes hard for us to accept it. It cannot be that easy. All we have to do is admit we can't do it on our own and we need Jesus. Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? We, we thank you for dying for my sins. That's it. Behold, this is the man.